Hey, and welcome to Pod Rocket. Um, I'm Noel, and joining me once again today is Adam Argyle. Uh, Adam is CSS dev advocate on the Chrome team, uh, host of the CSS podcast, and has been working on the GUI challenges podcast, video series, something. Um, how's it going, Adam? It's really good. Thanks for the intro. Of course, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch we can talk about. We were just talking about how much we have to try to get through in an hour here. Um, so yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, you recently spoke it was several months ago at this point at the Google I/O State of CSS 2022. Um, any kind of highlights there? Or anything you want to cover or expand upon a little bit? Woo, I don't know. So, it's so funny. You get to go to IO, you see this like 15 minute video where I jam pack a whole bunch of stuff into 50. I whittled that down from an hour and I whittled it down from like, I think I originally wanted to talk about 25 things or something. I was like, I could get 25 things in in 20 minutes. And then it was like, no, no, you can't. Uh, so the blog post ends up being this place where that was what I truly wanted to talk about. But then the Google IO talk is like a wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, you know, intro to everything, but yeah. Yes, intro intro to everything is <laughs> yeah is, <laughs> is quite the sell there. Um, yes, yeah, so like I guess I don't know. Are there are there any any super super high level highlights we could kind of start with and then and then dig in a little bit? Uh, I'm mostly just pumped that everyone um, kind of received all that information so well. There were some there you know things I spent 45 seconds on are really heavy cascade layers is like a good example like I gave a brief intro said here's one use case it's good at it's got way more than that um and then I also appreciated a lot of people um recognized how cool interop 2022 is you know like it is nice that the browsers are hacking together to make something stable it's not like we just want new hotness uh that's all wiggly and wobbly you know we want new hotness that deploys stable across it we want that grid experience right when grid launched you're like dang Grid is just like everywhere now. It's ready to go. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ubiquity there is is cool. I guess kind of um, maybe maybe to, to like on that note to set this up a little bit. Can you kind of talk about your your current role as uh, you know like a CSS dev advocate and where you sit on the Chrome team? Maybe for user or for listeners who haven't been in before, and then like how that kind of plays into your um, you know the, the way you look at like interoper interoperability. Awesome. Yeah, that totally uh, makes sense. Okay, so I'm sitting between PMs that manage actual features on Chrome. So that's like automatic dark mode and all sorts of things that are coming out. Um, and even just like the rendering team and the touch and interaction team. So there's like a team that does all the scroll, all the scroll snap, um, you know, animations and the frame rate of those animations and stuff like that. So then there's another team that's all about like rendering and layout and getting the performance of just rendering a whole page done. And then you, I have my own managers that want me to be doing DevRel things, right? And then I have um, the CSS Working Group, which is a place where I go uh, contribute to sort of like agnostic to Google's endeavors. This is just like pure CSS and, and wanting to do things well there. And then uh, the most important part to me uh, is, is listening to everyone else, having conversations with people in the hallway. Um, having conversations with my friends, having conversations on calls like this, just knowing what it is people are actually building, what are you using it for, what are the bugs, what sucks, how do I make that all better, 
and yeah, in the middle of all this, I will soak it all in and then, you know, write an article or go advocate for some new feature or go test some new feature. Like that's one of my favorite things to do. They're like, hey, Adam, we think this feature's ready. And I'm like, oh, do ya? Let me go ahead and build a couple demos and just show you how it's not yet. Um, and that can be fun. Um, or just building demos that showcase all of the um, difficulties of something like scroll snap is one like I'm involved in like these new scroll snap APIs that are coming out. Well, they're not coming out anyway, I'm still specking them. But anyway, I have to go build all these scroll snap demos that then uh, show the pain points. And so it's kind of fun to just do all that. It's, it's a many hat job. I also record videos and audio. And so I'm a video editor, right? I'm an audio editor. Uh, I do so many things. Yeah, nice, nice. Very cool. Um, what like what what efforts, uh, or I guess, like how does how does Google kind of set up itself so it can work with like other browsers to provide this like you know um, compatibility across the browsers and like ubiquity and APIs and stuff? What like how do they how do they kind of push that lever? Yeah, there's a team that has um, run surveys for developers, so the developers uh, report saying. You know, it's really difficult to do something cross-browser. And so uh, that's been so consistent for so long that now it's bubbled up into a team's effort to make that better. And they'll go back to Google and be like, hey, or Chrome, and they'll be like, hey, Chrome, um, people are struggling to build things across browser. Maybe you have the feature, maybe you don't. Um, it, it makes it really hard for someone to build these modern experiences if it's not everywhere. Um, and so efforts are being done to go identify what all these things are to query developers to to figure out and prioritize what these things are all in all you know like chrome's interested in you building things on the web and if you're struggling with that and if cross browser is an issue we even fund um, other browsers getting features and stuff like that or we'll help assist other browsers uh, level up so that we can all uh, rise together yeah nice 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 um i guess are there any kind of good recent examples of that we could kind of pull in yeah last year was the 2021 compatibility effort and the compatibility efforts were around things like um, flex is a very complex layout engine and so to to make that work uh there's well i guess long story short is it was so complex that it had a lot of edge cases that weren't compatible across browsers and it might have been even missing spec text or something and so we'll have an engineer go in there trying to fix all their flex bugs like here's a funny thing like you think of chrome as like this well maybe you don't i don't know but it's like this really solid piece of software surely there's not they're not shipping bugs this is google chrome this is the top engine no they're shipping bugs all the time it's just like the amount of code that's shipped is so humongous you don't see it and flex had hundreds of bugs on it at one point so did grid and so Chrome, in an effort to lower its own bug count and make it work better consistently across all the browsers, they write their tests and then they um, fix their bugs against those tests. So by writing tests for the web platform tests, the WPTs, other browsers get compared against those same tests and we can all see our kind of score against that. And that score is kind of what started to roll into that Interop 2022 effort where, and so uh, a couple of years ago, yeah, that 2021 compat was all about flex, grid. I think I go over this in the video too, but it's like transforms and some other things. So they're like kind of normalizing a baseline. And the interrupt 2022 is like developers want these features from CSS 
how about we just agree what we're going to hack on this year? And they set up meetings and they set up these little committees and they discussed what to build and they all just started hacking. The list is huge. I was like, y'all were really ambitious. You could have <laughs> just said, we'll do these three things this year, but they're like, here's 10. Well, awesome. Yeah. I will use all these things. So nice. Nice. Who is like, who is, um, kind of involved in that decision-making process outside of Google? Like who are the, who are the representatives there? Yeah. So let's see you have Safari and Firefox are sitting on that, um, in that meeting as well. I don't know if other browsers are too, but these are like the primary contributors to the web platform tests and the web platform tests were ultimately like what you had to pass to get this new interrupt. So it's like, it's kind of like interrupt 22 is very literally a set of tests that you're either passing or not. And so that's how it gets segmented and gets measured. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so do the, are those tests then like kind of c- coming out of the spec or I guess what, what is the, what is the journey like from like, okay, we have the spec. This is how things should work. This is what we generally want to do. Like these IP, APIs make sense to then getting the, like the web platform tests defined and figured out. Like, like what does that middle piece look like? Yeah. I think it's pretty normal. We're like, uh, you'll have a document that says you have a feature to build in your software. Uh, you might go write some tests. So uh, it's likely you'll have some amount of TDD. You're not in full TDD. There's no spec that all of a sudden had ever. Here's <laughs> no spec lands with a complete set of tests. The tests are sort of written by the engineers building the feature out of their own uh, necessity to test the things they're seeing. And so the the completion, right? This is pretty typical, right? You're like, oh, I made a function. It accepts this thing and it you passed the thing because I wrote both sides of it, you know, like, so that there can be a little self-fulfilling in that way, but it does still get to a stable set that then other browsers can at least start building on it. So then you have multiple contributors into these platform tests. The feature goes into a prototype stage where a browser's like, hey, we have it behind a flag. Uh, you can go try it out. So people go try it out. These tests are getting you know, built more and more as people find edge cases. Browsers are also working on the feature more, seeing that they're failing more tests. And eventually it gets into a decently hardened state. But um, to be honest, just like any test um, scenario, you just almost seem to never have enough time to write enough tests. Um, it's just a really complex thing. So that's kind of what happens though. The spec text gets written oftentimes in that prototype stage where the web platform tests are kind of getting rewritten or more to, they'll, uh, give info back to the spec. So be like, Hey spec, we noticed that you missed this thing. Like the flex, um, inter- the flex compatibility efforts of a couple years ago really started to get really fine details about, uh, you know, like what does flex direction do when the language is right to left and the flex columns are set to this and you're just like, oh yeah, row reverse, like row reverse right to left uh, with some logical properties. You're like, oh wow, that's my head spinning. Um, and so yeah, just getting that all. So yeah, it cycles like that. Hopefully that's a good answer. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I can't count the number of times where it's like, you know, you get the feature request just in general software dev, like you were saying, you go in and you start working on it. Then in like you're writing it or writing the tests for it, you're like, oh wait, what about all these like permutations we hadn't ever considered? So I think that that makes sense. I, I've just only ever experienced that personally on like, you know, an internal team working on a thing or even like an open source project that's a little bit more controlled. I feel like doing it on something like web APIs just sounds like it'd be so much more, um, I don't know, uh, involved. And like every time you're like, oh, the spec doesn't cover this well, like going back and getting that well-defined. Is that is that 
a drag? Like, is that a lot of work sometimes, or is it usually pretty snappy? Um, hmm. I mean, I think the short answer is yes. Anytime you think you're done with something and then someone's like, you're not, and you're like, okay, I'll do one of these. And then after you get like 10 of those, you're like, now this is getting less fun. Um, but when some, but just like normal, when something's done, it's done and it got vetted by so many different brains that you can feel really confident about it. And it's like, oh, this did, this just went from inception to like a hardened idea. Um, and it just took some time, right? You got to roll it, uh, spin it up, let that thing tumble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's what we would want to, like we want the web, <laughs> the things that are driving the web to be pretty hardened ideas. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. The, uh, funny, funny side note is the web platform tests are almost exclusively HTML files. And that is just not how anybody writes TDD or how they think about it. Like when you're writing tests in your mind, at least for me, almost entirely, I'm like JavaScript, JavaScript mocks, JavaScript spies, all these things went JavaScript, JavaScript, JavaScript. And then you get in the web platform test, you're like, they're just running documents. And you're like, wow. That's kind of cool. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A very like a very true test, I guess, in that regard then. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Very cool. I guess. So yeah, we, we talked about like the like flexing grid compatibility and stuff. Is there anything else that's kind of in that vein before we shift gears into like some of the newer stuff that's coming down that might be exciting? Um, that's exciting. I mean, a lot of the compatibility stuff was kind of boring, to be honest. Um, there were a lot of scenarios that most people weren't hitting. You know, there were typography fixes for things that most people weren't experiencing because they might be in a different language or, um, no, the compatibility stuff wasn't as nearly as exciting as interop 2022, which is like, <laughs> it's like Christmas. It's just like ching, ching, ching. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Right. Right. Yeah. So what are you, what are you most excited about as far as new stuff goes? What's, Ooh, uh, this is a tough one. I think color and has and scope. Uh, at scope is really um, it's going to help people battle less of the cascade. We're going to have like this kind of concept of CSS modules right there. You've got the donut scope as well. So scope meaning you won't have to go, it won't trickle down forever in your components. You can set an end to where like a custom property is. You're like, here's a custom property for my component. And it ends at the end of this component at this part of the tree. And that is really cool stuff. Um, color though is amazing. I, I learn more about color all the time. Um, and it becomes, yeah, it's one of those specialties. So some niche details are like, why do the gradients here look so beautiful? Um, and as you train your eye, you start to see these things more and more. And the web is going to, the web is about to have the most powerful design, uh, canvas in the world. And that to me, gets really exciting. So I'm waiting for design tools to catch up. I'm like, Hey, design tools, you see all the stuff, the browsers doing now? Hey, when are you going to give designers the ability to make container queries? Hey, when are you going to give designers the ability to make gradients in OKLCH? That'd be really sweet. Um, but yeah. Do you think that there's a weird, like, I guess, um, with most new features that come to the web, like in, in regards to, I don't know, like color or layout or design before the, the tools catch up, where like the only people that can really use these things are like the devs that can do the work manually. Um, do you think there's usually like a kind of a delay in there where it's like the tools aren't there? So there is like they're getting used in niche instances by devs who care about this kind of thing, but like they're not really being pushed by designers. So we don't see them bubbling up. Yeah, designers, I see designers and they're, it's kind of hard. You have like two mainstreams. There's like a mainstream developer set where, I mean, this could be your React world where 
Um, it feels like everyone is there. And designers have another stream that's just like that, where they feel like everyone is in Figma or everyone is in XD and everyone's using tokens and um, the components that they're given there. And so while they're in those worlds, um, it does, it takes tastemakers and people looking at the edge to find these new features, to go push for them in their um, particular tools. So whether it's an IDE to have syntax support for container queries, or if you're in a Figma file and you're like, I would really like to make adjustments based on my container, um, which is kind of how I feel like I'm working, uh, but it's still a little viewport-esque. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm totally answering the question, but I think there is usually some back yeah. and forth, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of a nebulous question. I just I, I just feel like historically, I've always always kind of observed like these you know when new features come out come to the web, it's like until those design tools catch up, you're really only seeing them in like code pens and stuff. Like devs are like, look at this cool new thing I can do with web, and it's like not really out in the wild. It's not like it's not on like brand landing pages and stuff like that yet, just because like it doesn't seem to be in the tool space that the people setting up those you know like really heavily used consumer products are using. Um, so I, I don't know. I was, I was just kind of curious if you'd seen that pattern as well, um, and if you think there's anything that we could ever do to make that easier. Like, is there is there any anything we could do to make it so it's the the tooling is easier to keep in line with like the spec that the, the stuff the web is capable of doing? Yeah, that's a good point. So it's almost like um, the the more infrastructure you build for your like let's say your web design tool. So you've got all these GUIs that help you build component based designs. Um, they're all they're going all in on managing so much stuff for you, simulating container queries, maybe or, or like trying to give you future features early. And then it gets difficult for them as soon as it actually comes out. And now they're like, well, we have the synthetic one or now there's the real one. How do we pivot from here to there? Um, and yeah, sometimes the browser comes out with the feature first and it, it takes a while to go back upstream. And sometimes it's design tools that have things first and it takes a while for those things to go downstream into the browser. I think to make things easier is to stay closest to HTML. It's like every time I choose a framework, I'm able to get in one direction really fast, but another direction I kind of move further away, which is, yeah, closer to the spec, closer to fresh things that come out. Like the less, the less um, tooling I have, the more availability I have to just like be nimble and try something new. But that nimbleness comes with the cost of, well, this other app was really sturdy. Maybe it was built in TypeScript and I have like three years worth of code in there, you know, and it's just, well, that's just a mature product and it's going to be a little hard to move versus uh, something new. That is a, it is an interesting though relationship between new features, getting them into IDEs, getting them into browse or like design tools and that cycle. It also is kind of a cool thing for like jobs. Like I think it makes it nice for new new tools to come out. Like, so that's, you know, I don't know if you remember when Sketch came out, it sounded like Sketch was never gonna lose. Every designer was on Sketch thinking it was the bee's knees. Um, and then all of a sudden it was like toast one day, um, Figma came out and you're like, wow, they conquered that, which I thought could be unconquered. I think we'll just keep seeing that. It's almost like a healthy churn as things um, make bets. They make bet on a certain technology, like Sketch made some bets on their document structure that was like SVG based. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know how to, it's kind of fun, but I don't know how to protect oneself. <laughs> It's tricky. It's 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 almost like yeah, the, the tool the tool ties itself to a certain layer of abstraction from the spec. Like this is this is how close we are willing to tie ourselves absolutely in a way that is probably going to be like irreversible long term. Like this is the this is the 
full layer of abstraction at which we like jump in. It's like, if that, if the demand for that changes, it's like easier for the tool to, to like get undermined by something else. It's like, oh, we want to, we want to be at a different layer of, of abstraction. And it feels like as like the web specs become more robust or can do more or easier to work with, maybe it's like, oh, maybe there is a demand for something that integrates like a layer down in abstraction. Um, I'm thinking like Framer X is a good example where, um, yeah, they, they went all in on an abstraction layer, which was a smart choice. That is the most popular abstraction layer. And then you get a bunch of superpowers because of that. Like, here, we'll give you code. Um, but but yeah, you do. You, as you invest in one thing, another part of your muscles kind of get weaker, I guess. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of what we want, right? Like, if we were all writing, like, C code still would be kind of slow sometimes. Like, it, like it's just, it's the same story as everything else. Like, we like we like these layers of abstraction because they help us. But um, there's definitely, like, an, an interesting kind of philosophical, you know, uh, route to get into there. I agree. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for PodRocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. Yeah, cool. Anyway, let's, let's come out a little bit. So, so we said color you're excited about, you're t- excited about um, uh, like scoping, like the, the, the queries, the selectors to give us to pop in and pop out. What specifically in color, if we can dive in a little bit there, is is cool? Like what, why now is the web more powerful in that regard? Yeah, there's kind of two two main things I think about. Oh, maybe there's three. <laughs> there's, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> there's like... Everyone in their, well, not everyone, but many people in their pockets and on their desktops, they have gorgeous displays and the web can't use the colors. So that's like the first one. Like you're stuck in the same colors that your 20 year old TV has. And you're like, well, now I have a new TV. I'd like to see those colors. And the web can do that in video and images, but not with CSS. And so it's going to be nice for us to create gradients and to create shadows and to create these things in these newer color spaces that are going to give us a lot more depth, a lot more vibrance, a lot more beauty. So it's going to pull out that quality of the display. The second thing I really like is the interpolation spaces. So going from one color to the next, we have all these tools now that help us work around RGB um, where you can like, I want to go from red to blue, um, but I'm going to add a special little stop somewhere in the middle so that it doesn't do its dumb travel. Like it doesn't travel uh, through the dead space. I'm going to help it work around the dead space. And then, well, in the future, we're going to have these color spaces that just do that for free. They're just built that way. The way they pack the colors is so that the things travel through the vibrant areas uh, if you're going from vibrant to vibrant. Uh, so that's another thing. So you got like, you have new colors. You have this ability to um, specify how you want them to transition. So this is almost like an easing curve kind of between color. Ah, it's not the same, but it's kind of similar. And then the third thing are color functions. So you've got color mixing, which just sounds like a basic thing we should have had a long time ago. Mix red with white. Uh. Um, then thing number two is color contrast, which is a very magical function, which will take two colors and tell you um, which, well, you take a base color and you compare it against a sequence of colors and it will find the one that's the most contrasting or it'll find the first one to pass a target score. 
And that's really helpful for design systems because now you can sort of automate whether you're using utility classes or just custom properties, you can automate good contrast in a really healthy, sustainable way. It's much more hands-off, which is really nice. But then the final thing in the color functions is uh, relative color syntax, like the ability to extract things out of one color to build a new color. Um, and yeah, turns out color Whoa, t- Tell me more about that. What does that mean? How does that work? Yeah, okay. How, do, how does relative color syntax work? Yeah. yeah, you're familiar with destructuring in JavaScript? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, object with all these properties. I'm just going to take a couple of these out of there uh, by name, and now I have them in my hand. It's like these little variables. So if you think about color as being, we've been trained now over the past few years in color to think about three channels. Um, with HSL, it's hue, saturation, lightness. With RGB, it's red, green, blue, and you're sort of like passing these things. So with relative color syntax, you can extract the color channels out of a color into variables, and then you can perform a calculation on them and return a new color. So like a really good example is you've got a brand blue and you want to create a variant. Maybe it's like a hover highlight color. Um, and the brand blue you were given from a designer, very classic, it's just a hex. Maybe the hex even came from a style guide that was made 15 years ago, right? This is just that company's brand blue. So you take uh, the hex color and you stash it in a custom property or not, it doesn't matter, but you can say um, color. So you're gonna call the color function, open parentheses, uh, well, actually, you don't call color. You specify which type of color you want at that time. So let's say uh, HSL, just to keep it simple. So you have HSL from hex color, and then you'd say, uh, and then you'd get HSL as these destructured channels that you can then use a calc function on to lighten, darken, divide, multiply. And yeah, it lets you take blue, um, say HSL from that blue, take the lightness and increase it by 10% on hover. So now you have like pretty much what you were doing in SAS all this time. You can now uh, do that in line in your uh, CSS on hover and and be very dynamic about it. It's- nice, nice. What like where do you see that being particularly useful? Because I, f- I feel like the I feel like the argument there would be this seems like a lot of lifting to be doing in CSS functions, right? Like. Why, why do we need to, you know, pull the hue out of a color and change it and then send it back in specifically versus just like computing that outside of a tool and setting it as a value somewhere? Yeah, that's a good question. So like if you were doing it in a preprocessor, for example, and you had five different themes in your site, you'd have to have five different, because um, right, it's declarative, you have to have five different entries that define all of these separately. And when you have a function that can do it, it can be very dynamic against a custom property. So something can change a custom property and all of a sudden the color gets updated and gets adjusted by 10% on hover, just because that's the nature of how you programmed it. So you can get rid of a lot of this declarative code uh, into something very dynamic and reactive. Um, yeah, it's like an example there. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, so like, just to make sure I'm understanding, so like, say you've got a, a hover effect that you're putting on a button when somebody hovers over it that makes it like a little bit darker, for example. So you could always take it and say, when hovered over, this should just be the darker variant of whatever the base button color is computed as. Is that, yeah, cool, cool, yeah. Yeah, it used to have a name called color adjust. So like where you had color mix, where you mixed colors, there was a color adjust spec function that was very familiar for folks like lighten by 20% um, or darken by, and you would have these functions, like these function names in it. But it turned out that the relative color syntax could do the same stuff with less code and it could do 
more stuff. So essentially color just got hacked. It was like, we don't need you anymore. This new syntax for relative color is way more powerful um, and more succinct. So that's um, a good way to think of it too, is like a color adjustment. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I think it'd be super, super helpful, especially like if you're building some kind of web app where there's just like a ton of dynamic colors or like user defined colors happening, maybe like people can yeah, set their profile like, color or something. And then like, you want to do stuff with that. That sound, that'd be awesome um, to have that tool set there. I think. Cool. I think another one you touched on there that I'm curious about is color contrast. Can you tell me more about what that's for, what that does? Yeah. So color contrast says uh, color dash contrast, open up a parenthesis, pass in a base color. Uh, this can be a hex or a custom property. So let's say you pass in, um, just a medium blue. And then you say space versus, so VS, um, and then you list a bunch of colors. And the basic version of the function just checks each of the colors and finds the one with the most contrast. It also accepts the, um, uh, like an ability to not spe specify any colors. You just say color contrast against blue, and it will determine if black or white is the better text color for oh, you. Oh, neat. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty like, cool. Yeah, you yeah. can just throw a color at it and then have a good contrasting text color or have a contrasting background color based on text color. So it's like kind of, it doesn't care about how exactly it gets used, um, but its basic version finds the most contrasting. But if you want sort of more of a subtlety to your text colors or a subtlety to something else, you can specify how much contrast it should pass, give it a whole list of colors, and it will find the one that matches that target contrast, or it will pick black or white, depending on whichever one's closer. But yeah, you kind of get this like design system idea where you're like, designers usually have a list of text colors. Uh, and then you also usually have a list of background colors. You essentially can like chuck those at the browser and be like, hey, browser, here's the current background color of this little thing. And here's all of my text colors. I want it to be a double A contrast and it will find it. And that's it. You get to walk away and the background can change to a new background color. Same list of text colors. Uh, stay and they get matched against that other alternative background color and it'll find the one that passes it. So you get this really like extendable, uh, self-sufficient contrast system baked right into the browser. So it should make passing your, you know, contrast much easier, which is like the number one accessibility issue is low contrast text. Yeah. Is that, is that like the default? So like if, you, if you don't specify anything and it's just like choosing black or white based on, you know, those, is there, is that, is that, um, is like accessibility, or like accessibility parameters, what's instructing that default like contrast threshold that needs to be met? Yeah, it's being powered by the Wicked 2.1 um, contrast spec, which is like the one that every tool has been using for. Yeah, it's the double A, the triple A. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so 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 then I'm 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 sitting here like my gears are turning now. So so you could have something where you have like relative color computation happening. So back to a button, like there's a button with text on it and there's like relative color computation happening to figure out the hover color or the click color of that button. And then the color contrast function could be powering the color that is like the text in the middle. So then again, if it's like a user defined color and when hovered over, it needs to be, the text needs to be white. You could set it up so it's like, well, regardless of how the user defines the color, whenever it's hovered over the correct contrasting color is the one that ends up getting used. Like if they define a color that when hovered, it needs to be dark, it'll turn dark. Otherwise it'll turn light. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a really great example. Yeah, so you've got like this like theme color on your button on hover. 
you specify that the text color should contrast against the background um, and you'll use a custom property for that. And then no matter what background color ever gets set on the button on hover, uh, you'll always be in the best set of contrasts that you can. Nice. Yeah, yep. yeah. That's awesome. And, and 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 yeah, to your point as well of like, you know, having a giant a list, like these are the possible text colors for our app and just being able to like send those everywhere as the text color, right? Just set that and pick the one that we can with contrast and make it work. Um, I guess that leads to an interesting question for me. So is there like, in, um, when, when you're supplying colors to this contrast function and you set the threshold, is the first one that meets that threshold the one that ends up getting used? Or is it like the best, you know, like the most contrasting one? Yes. So when you don't specify a target, it finds the most contrasting from the list. If you specify a target, it grabs the first to pass. Cool. Yeah. I yeah. That, I think that that would make sense because people, you know, like you'd say, well, the designers say these are our order of like the order of precedent. Like this, this should be the one we can use when we can yeah. or else X, Y, Z. Um, they usually like go to lightness or darkness, right? You're like, here's our darkest text color and our lightest text color. And you're like, cool, browser, figure out the first one that gives me good enough ratio and yeah, I'm out of here. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, any other, any other, I think you said the other one was like color mixing. Is that like, where is that useful? <laughs> I guess is maybe my question. Like, why, why would I, why would I want that as a web dev or you know, even a designer? Yeah, that was a, so if we, we did a lot of research against usage of SAS. So we scrubbed GitHub to look at all this open source SAS files that we could. And we found that color mix was like the number, it's like the number one way that people were adjusting color, which is a little, to me, it was a little weird because um, people were like, add white, you know, they're like, I want to lighten this. So they'd mix it with white, which I, I suppose makes sense. Um, and so why we have color mix in there is because that's, it was just so highly used. We needed something like it. And uh, the way it works is, yeah, you, you pass two colors, you can say how much of each color should be used in the mix. So it's almost like a, a dominance of this color. Like I'm going to mix red with white and I want it to be mostly white. So 90% white mix. And then you get this really, really pale pink kind of color. Um, and yeah, that's color mix. You can also do these color mixing um, in different color spaces, which is, I think, another one of the superpowers of all of this stuff, specifying that I want to mix an LCH instead of HSL. And that will give you a more perceptual result as opposed to HSL, which is um, a little bit more variant in the way that you can lighten and darken things. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. So again, again, it tracks with me that it was, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. It's, it's surprising to me that like mixing is used that much in the web, even, even just to lighten and darken. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that's what people would be reaching for. Do, do you think that that is a, is a, um, I don't know, a healthy way to move forward. I guess if you were, if you were making a recommendation to a, you know, a team writing, writing new CSS, like clean web app, would you say like use the color mix functions or like lean on the, you know, like relative color functions when you can, like, what would your recommendation be? Yeah, I, this is a great question. This kind of reminds me of like HSL versus HWB. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're almost a, a, just a bit of preference. Um, I've made color theme systems with both relative color syntax and color mix. I can get pretty much identical results. Uh, it's just a legibility thing. Um, you know, color mix, it was all uh, creating like my dark variants were all like, okay, mix this with black at 25%, mix this one with black at 10% and giving me these different um, darknesses that I could use in my application versus the real... I think it's just a legibility. So yeah, I, make, I made that comparison HSL to HWB because H, HSL 
and he should be, be both start with hue yeah hue <laughs> whiteness and, and blackness and i guess if you're into color mixing and you mix a lot of black or white with your colors you might like hwb because that's just just the way you think is like um it colors with a darkness or a lightness in them so i don't know i think it could just be preference or maybe how the designer was articulating their colors yeah yeah, yeah totally like do you think a mix of both it like should be shied away from and like a, you know in a given project like should you try to stick with one or do you think you use use whichever one is most appropriate for a given a given color calculation yeah that's funny i think uh they they each have a little bit of a unique use case so i i prefer the relative color syntax as much as i can um i just like the way it works i also love destructuring and it just it feels powerful but i could see color mix becoming um, important if you literally want to mix colors, um, you know, that, that would, that would be its superpower. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, whereas like the relative color syntax can't, can't mix, you could, you could adjust the hue, you know, you could like rotate the hue or something like that and try to nudge it towards another color. But now nah, you're just like, no, if I need to mix colors, I'll just use the color mix function. So I, yeah, maybe that would be my assertion right now. It, my early assertion is use relative color syntax unless you are actually mixing mixing colors yeah yeah i that makes sense to me just just from our our i haven't i haven't like looked at these at all but just from our conversation it sounds to me like the re relative color sounds more i don't know like programmatic it sounds more programming e like you know just like destructuring changing specific values and building a new color versus just like here's two colors give me the middle of them uh is like a layer of abstraction that is powerful if you're literally trying to mix two colors. But it seems like if you're just trying to lighten or darken, the flexibility of relative color would be, I guess maybe the, like the, hmm, the, comp, the computed nature of relative color seems like it'd be handy um, to have there. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, any, any other you know, particular stuff, new stuff? Other than color, um, that you're excited about, I got to see like uh, layer like on the list here. How does the layer selector work? Yeah, at layer. So at layer is um, if you've heard of it CSS, it CSS, inverted triangle CSS, mm -hmm. or um, in SAS they've had this for a while also, where you could import things into various layers, and it gave you this ability to like um, articulate the stack of styles independent of actual network load time and so like like you probably had a huge index.stylus or a huge index.sass file that very meticulously was hand managed and like all of our libraries are imported at the top and then all of our normalized and resets and then all of our this and all of our that and that was because you were intentionally creating an override scenario but the bummer was is that if anything needed to load outside of that index file, it could it could load before, after it'd have to be in the HTML somewhere. And you had this sort of like, you have an asynchronous loading nature, but the way that you were trying to articulate your cascade stack was very synchronous. And cascade layer pops in here and says, well, as soon as we see that you define some layers, you can define them in order, you know, which one is first, which one's last anything that loads any other time in the page, we can insert it into the appropriate layer that you want. So it's essentially you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to articulate it synchronously, but any asynchronous loading gets to go right into those spots. And it just becomes this sort of like, you don't have to worry about it as much. You get to load your uh, libraries really late. So you could lazy load your libraries, but still pop them way up high into the cascade. So it's kind of neat. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I, I'd probably have to like sit on that one a bit more to fully like realize the power of it. I think it sounds like it'd be kind of hard, hard to manage. Is 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 there a kind of a a layer of 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 planning and I guess understanding of like the nature of asynchronous loading that one would need to have to use layer well is that true uh, i think that is generally true and you're right in that at layer ha has some complexity it's bringing with it so I'm, i mentioned that one use case as as like a, a loading strategy but at layer has a second superpower which is that these layers also create their own kind of scopes and the scopes do have specificity so like a layer for example styles not in a layer have more specificity than styles in a layer and so knowing that or not or not knowing that uh either gives you a superpower or becomes something you're like why is my style not working um you know i put it in a layer and i, I don't see it it's being overwritten by this other style and if you don't get how your layers are working um you can get yourself into some issues but yes it does have some rough sides um but it can really help you also seclude different things and create these more controlled stacks of styles and overrides so yeah depends on how intimate you are with the cascade how much you are are playing into inheritance and extendability and that sort of thing yeah nice nice um yeah. Any, 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 other, any others you want to spend time on? We don't have a ton more time, so I want to make sure we talk about the stuff you're excited about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at container and has, has being, um, you know, like traditionally a selector only lets you go to the item at the end. So you'd be like, div div space P and you'd only be, you know, targeting the, um, paragraphs and has lets you flip that. So people think of it like a parent selector, but it's, which it can be. So you could select the div that has a paragraph and that's like easy use case. Number one, but you can use has in the middle uh, or at the end, and it can really, I guess if you have like a, a radio set, you can now change your whole application based on what choices they're making in that radio set um, anywhere in the tree. And you just get this like brand new um, reactive superpower to the state of the tree, changing styles other places. Uh, that was really cool. And then you have at container, this ability to look to see how wide or tall my current container is and adjust my flex, adjust my grid container uh, or grid columns. And then even coming soon is the ability to uh, at container query the style of something. So you could say, is this container display none? Is this container, does it have overflow auto? And then you could adjust your styles based on these things. So querying the size, querying the style, and then even after that is querying the state being like, is, is my container stuck? Uh, or is, does it have a snapped child and these sort of like more advanced stateful things, you being able to query the container for those and adjusting yourself accordingly. It's, it's cool stuff. That's super cool. I guess, yeah. One quick question on, on the, uh, has, uh, class. Is it a, is it a pseudo class technically? What? It's a pseudo selector. Yeah. Pseudo selector. Pseudo class also. Yeah. Anyway, either way, like that, I guess that kind of observation and reactivity that it, um, that it gives devs, I feel like those kinds of paradigms can be a foot gun sometimes. And like you end up getting yourself into trouble when you can set these things and like 
Um, just, you know, you end up with this system that's very like complex and brittle and changing one, like when you're make, when you're refactoring or trying to make changes, you end up like, oh, inadvertently breaking all this stuff because you've got these like hard to trace lines of um, kind of reactivity, I guess, like functionality that changes somewhere based on somewhere else. Is there, uh, when, when you're looking at, when you're looking at something like this, it has class, do, do you think about that at all? Or is that like a concern, um, you know, that this comes up in discussions. Yeah, definitely. That was one of the reasons has took so long um, is it was a known performance issue. Mm -hmm. I, see. Uh, I mean, like, yeah, you could have has inside a has or has with another has with another has. And, um, you know, the way that they were doing performance optimizations before is they were looking at the furthest item and moving backwards up the selector. And then they had to come up with new performance patterns to account for the potential impacts of has. So yeah, has can get you into um, really complex scenarios. Um, it can maybe get you out of a complex scenario also. Yeah, all of these things are really interesting to to move into the view layer because they felt like they should be there. You're like, and we were doing all these really nasty hacks before this where we were looking at adjacent siblings with like the plus selector, looking to see if a checkbox was checked or not. We hid the checkbox and all of this really weird stuff but now we should be able to really articulate it a little bit clearer here there is a like a future of state machines being in the browser too with um the toggle function and so if you're wondering how to map all that complexity and all that state um that syntax could really help if you think state machines are um, an easier way to model ui yeah i mean i think ui is a particularly uh, applicable case of uh, like using state machines to keep track of you know the possible the possibilities. So I think that that helps a lot with this kind of concern that I was trying to bring up. Just like I don't know how to edit, edit like it makes me scared to edit this stuff anymore because like I don't know what all selectors are going to be based on it, and like I'm going to inadvertently break things that I'm you know not even looking at when I'm editing this given file, right? Like that's the kind of fear that I'm trying to curb. But I feel like if you've got a state machine, that scope is good there. Yeah. yeah. So out scope lets you. You're like, oh, well, I'll just stick all my has work in here, and then I know it's all scoped. It's almost almost like CSS contain modules, it. but plus, yeah, you can contain it because yeah, I agree. CSS has this nature of where it's like I'm global all the time. Um, and people are like, well, that is kind of freaky because I work in this very scoped mental model all the time. Um, and yeah, that's, I guess, scope is helping you <laughs> uh, bridge that and making sure that your styles are very secluded to something specific. specific. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds like there's kind of there's there's stuff there for everybody, like depend, depending on the concerns that you have, like there is tooling being added to make it easier to like factor those in. Um, so that's that's yeah. super awesome to hear. Um, yeah, I guess is there anything kind of upcoming in, in the in the near midterm future that isn't necessarily like you know ready to be explored or usable yet, um, but you're excited to kind of see it coming out? Yeah, I mean, I have some uh, selfish ones in there. So I was talking about uh, scroll snap and how there's some new specs I'm I'm working on, and those are things for. I mean, some of them seem really obvious. Like scroll end is not a function on the web, so you have to write your own, and that seemed kind of silly. I'd like to have snap events, so you could snap to something um, or have an easy way to do that. Um, but the kind of two main ones that I'm most stoked about are, are the snap target pseudo class. So if something is snapped, uh, it would match this snap target pseudo class, and you could go change its state. You could give it a shadow and lift it up uh, since it be snapped. Another one is scroll start. So if you have a scroller that needs to not start at the beginning, 
Um, instead of using JavaScript that has to wait for the page to load and do all the shenanigans, put it in CSS. Say, start at this element or start this far from the scroll um, position. And so it's like these like little additions to really help you gain control of scroll and create beautiful scroll ex experiences. Um, I'm excited to see where that's going. Yeah, awesome, awesome, cool. Um, I guess, yeah, more broadly, anything else you want to plug? Anywhere, anything you want to send listeners to to check out? No, I mean, dev, the dev tools, we try to come out with dev tools that come out with all these features so that they are a little less complex. Like at layer has dev tools that came out with it. We have scroll snap dev tools, um, subgrid will have dev tools. Um, but if you find that the dev tools leave you wanting or that there's something that you can't see, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, we love talking about um, how to make dev tools complement our developer experience better and let me know what you're thinking. I'd love to hear it. Nice, nice. Any other uh, projects or um, you know content you want to plug? Anything else? Uh, yeah, GUI challenges. I have a library called Open Props. They're just free custom properties to go use. They're super powerful, and you just get to go, hey, give me a gradient or give me a shadow, and it's just this super-powered shadow that you don't even have to worry about. Um, yeah, those are two two plugs. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to get links in the show notes to, to all that stuff so listeners can find it a little bit more easily. Um, but yeah, thanks again for coming in and chatting with us, Adam. It was it was a pleasure, just as last time. Of course. Um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's nice being here. Of course. Yeah, take it easy. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.